welcome to Catholic Church Reform International podcast series. I'm your moderator, Rini Reed, and our guest today is Sister Simone Campbell, who is with Network Lobby for Catholic Social Justice. Network has advocated on Capitol Hill for over 40 years, and since their founding, they have focused on legislation that will benefit all the people and not just the rich and the powerful. Sister Simone, welcome. Great to be with you. You and other nuns have been on your virtual Nuns on the Bus tour. Tell me about it. Oh, yes. Well, it's been it's been really good. We started about uh, 10 days ago now with a rally, a kickoff rally, uh, and it's all virtual. But the glorious thing about this is um, while we miss the in-person reality, because this is our seventh trip and six of them have been in-person real buses. Well, this is virtual because of the pandemic. And, but what we've discovered is that while it's hard not to be face-to-face, in-person, able to touch, um, people can come from all over the country. That it's way more open. In fact, at our uh, opening town hall, we had somebody from Colombia and Peru who came uh, to our opening town hall. So the good news is, is that it's more available. The bad news is, is it's harder for that that personal touch. So we started with our rally about um, who we elect matters. Uh, we had, uh, it was kind of exciting. We had Speaker Pelosi, we had um, uh, Senator Cory Booker, we had uh, the SEIU, the union president, uh, Mary Kay Henry, and a couple of people who told these powerful stories was fabulous. And uh, Reverend Otis Moss gave us the blessing for our virtual bus. And there was a lot of really good energy about that. And it was so touching to me because Speaker Pelosi stayed for the whole rally. And and her schedule's a little crowded these days. So, but she stayed for the whole rally and then called me, had her staff call me and they put her on. But to say, that was so wonderful. She felt so uplifted by it. And folks who might be listening to this who want to go listen to an uplifting piece is you can go on our nunsonthebus2020.org and uh, you can get the recording there for the uh, our virtual rally. And since oh, then, we've been doing site visits where we go places that are providing services. We go to, we've, each night we've done a town hall for, um, spirit-filled voters where all of us practice talking about being a multi-issue voter. And one of the things we've, one of the reasons we're doing this is we know that our Catholic faith has been hijacked by a political party in uh, effort to control the Catholic vote by focusing on a single issue. And as Pope Francis has made abundantly clear, it's not about a single issue. Equally sacred to caring for the unborn is caring for the born, for the marginalized, for the, you know, for the planet, for those who have been left out of our care, equally sacred. And so this whole thing is about empowering people, making missionaries of people to speak up for being multi-issue voters. We have to reclaim the fullness of our faith. And that's what we're about. It's kind it's of fun. Really talk about that single issue because so many, and particularly the older generation, have been groomed, trained, 
and programmed that you have to vote for a anti-choice, pro-life, theoretically pro-life, which was really in my mind pro-birth um, candidate. And it's so programmed, it's so ingrained in us. Talk about that multi-issue because there's so much that we have responsibility for as Christians to be concerned oh. for people who well beyond the infancy stage, what about the rest of life? Exactly. Um, and so what we um, do is one of the things I talk about is my sin of silence. And I confess my sin, and I'll confess here my sin, it's good for the soul, that in the eight, uh, 80s when the polarization was taking place, uh, I didn't want to be identified with the far right. And rather than speaking up, because I didn't want the fight, I didn't want to engage it, I was silent. And what I realized is lots of us were silent. And that left the whole field of faith-based advocacy just to the far right, who were holding on to this single issue. And it wasn't even about caring for the unborn, caring for the moms. It wasn't about that. It's about the criminalization of abortion. Now, the criminalization of abortion is not going to help a pregnant mom. And so my silence, our silence for a lot of us, gave the whole field to a very narrow interpretation of what our faith calls us for. And so I'm trying to make, I confess my sin. I know it was a social sin to be silent, to not speak up, but I'm trying to make up for lost time. So my, my atonement, my atonement with this is, to speak about it clearly, directly, is our faith calls us to care for the unborn. And then Pope Francis, in his exhortation on holiness, says, equally sacred, however, is the care for those already born, for the lives of the poor, the destitute, the abandoned, and the underprivileged, the vulnerable, infirm, and the elderly exposed to covert euthanasia, the victims of human trafficking, new forms of slavery, and every form of rejection. Equally sacred. And then it goes on and talks about equally sacred is caring for the migrants, for those fleeing persecution. And then he says this, a politician looking for votes might say that only a single grave bioethical issue matters. But, he says, such a thing is, for a politician is understandable, but not a Christian for whom the only proper attitude is to stand in the shoes of our brothers and sisters of ours who risk their lives to offer a future to their children. That's what we're called to. Oh, Francis is so, is so the man needed for our time. Yes, on so many issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not but, on all but, the issues, but on no, most no. of <laughs> He's human. He's human. And he's an elderly Argentinian, for heaven's sakes. I and mean, we always forget these figures, these leaders are human. So, But the, the piece that I think is so critical is for people of faith to know that we are called to this multi-issue perspective to the complexities of the interrelationship of life. And that in order to have life, we need to 
uh, respond to that. But on this single issue, this idea of the criminalization of abortion as being the way to care for the unborn, the thing that we know is if uh, pregnant women need access to healthcare, pregnant women need access to good nutrition, pregnant women need access to secure housing, because all those factors work together to create a healthy baby. And just the focusing on whether or not uh, this one procedure is outlawed doesn't take care of women. And this current administration in our nation is trying to outlaw or to remove the Affordable Care Act. And by removing the Affordable Care Act, we would go back to the old days where people have forgotten this, but the majority of private insurance did not include maternity care because it was considered women were considered a pre-existing condition and you had to pay extra for maternity care that so many people couldn't afford so the allegedly pro-life party is trying to take health care away from pregnant women ah, that's not pro-life so we have to be much better about speaking out of the dignity of all life. And that's what we're trying to do in our bus. So let's expand just a little bit more on some of those issues. Once the infant is born, <laughs> yes. we have so much legislation that works against the poor infant. The, the yeah. infant born into a poor family, we have almost nothing. What, what can voters do to focus on some of the legislation that uh, and the, the politicians who are going to represent us into childhood, into their education, into their growing up and getting a job, having insurance in the, with the, for their family. All those issues seem to be overlooked by the quote pro-life party. That's what bothers me. Absolutely. Oh, Rene, that is so true. It's so annoying. More than 50%, more than half of the births in the United States are paid for through the Medicaid program, which is for low-income families. That's how it's paid for. So that means that those moms are low, in, those families are low-income, and those children are born into low-income families. Right now in Congress, there's a big fight over whether or not there's going to be a new package of relief to folks who are unemployed because of COVID-19. One of the sticking points, one of the sticking points is that the part, Republican Party or the Republican leadership, it's not the party, the Republican leadership wants to give both uh, tort protection from lawsuits as well as additional cuts to the wealthy, but not give additional benefits to low-wage families through the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. Those two tax credits would be a critical stimulus package that would come to these families in January. And one party says it's not necessary, but we have to support the wealthy. That's not a pro-life stance. That's wrong. And so we're lifting up as a faith-based organization caring for the marginalized. That's what Jesus did. Jesus always went towards 
those who were hurting, those the poor. He welcomed people in. And that's what we need to do. Or otherwise we're not being faithful. It's Francis' concept of the church being a field hospital where we're healing the wounded, where we're taking care of the needy. I mean, that's the whole point of the existence of Jesus's church. Right. But one of the things that that the Republican Party, members of the Republican Party have said to me, well, sister, you know, the church should just take care of people. Well, that's true. And we do. But the magnitude of the problems are so large right now. There is no way that the church can measure up to the need. I mean, this is a national and global crisis. And our nation right now is pulling back from both from our obligations globally and our obligations to nationally. And that's shocking to me. I mean, historically, we have always been a generous nation who responds to the needs of people who are struggling. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, yesterday on the bus, on our virtual bus, uh, we, were, we did a site visit in Iowa, and um, in Iowa City, uh, with the Interfaith Worker Justice Group. And this group had principally, before COVID-19, been about protecting low-wage workers, getting uh, stolen wages back, uh, helping them uh, with employer uh, problems, doing organizing in uh, a trailer park which was being exploited by the owners. I mean, there's a lot of stories about what they were doing and doing really good work. Since COVID-19, their work has shifted to trying to get food and um, safety equipment to the these very vulnerable families because employers weren't providing safety gear, weren't providing what was needed or had closed down and there were not uh, supports. Then comes this freak wind called the derecho that the derecho came through and just blew down the crops, blew down houses, blew down trees, created devastation. And it was too, it was too big for anybody. Uh, that There's a picture of this one church where the steeple had just been ripped off and the, the roof was gone. The houses that were, you know, um, just lost. A woman in a motor, in a, a mobile home, it was just torn apart by the wind. So in that quality of disaster, upon disaster, we need, a, we need our government, who's supposed to promote a more perfect union, to respond. But nothing's happened. It's shocking. We are, we're long past the days of, of Ronald Reagan and Skip O'Neill sitting down and working things out. We just don't have that in our congressional representation right now. Well, we have to hold a positive thought because just before I got on this, there was some information that Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin from the um, Treasury appeared to have made a breakthrough. So I'm hopeful, moderately hopeful, but here's the problem. We have no idea what Senator McConnell and the Senate will do with it, even if the White House approves it. It's shocking. And the White House approval is 
with, as of today, our president actually got COVID and is hospitalized. No, he's not hospitalized. He's, he is at the White House. Oh, he's at the White House. Okay. Um, he's at the White House. Who's in charge? Who's who's going to make that decision? Um, I think he, the president appears to still be working. They say he has a low fever and that he's still engaged. So I think the real fight, if you want to know inside politic gossip, gossip it's the fight is between Secretary Mnuchin and uh, uh, Meadows, who is the chief of staff. Meadows right. would never want to do this. Mnuchin knows how important it is for the people. Actually, what he knows is it's important for the economy and the stock market. So that's his concern. That's uh, all right. If that if that concern serves our our purpose, if that serves our need. Speaker Pelosi is abundantly clear that she will not have a deal that only protects those at the top. That we've got to care for all of our people, and so she is fierce on that. We should probably talk about the untimely passing of Justice Ginsburg. She was such a representative for the voice of the people, all the people, not just a few of the people. And now she's going to be replaced. Can you tell us what her replacement means to our Catholic heritage? Well, it's quite worrisome what it means to our Catholic heritage because Judge Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg was so thoughtful, so foresightful, willing to take the long view and work incrementally to form this more perfect union. The part that is so concerning about Judge Barrett is she says, first of all, she does not, she calls herself an originalist of the Constitution. And I hadn't really thought a lot about being an originalist. That was what Justice Scalia said about himself. And that was, she clerked for Scalia. So she's close with Justice Scalia's point of view. But if you're an originalist, meaning that you go back to the meaning of the original founders, I really think you're being unconstitutional because the preamble to the Constitution says we will form a more perfect union. We will work at this. We will move forward. And so what Judge Barrett appears to believe is none of the provisions against racism, like the anti-discrimination provisions, should be upheld. She doesn't believe that Congress should uh, care that health care should be extended to our people, allegedly because, well, we didn't do that originally in 1789, um, that she doesn't believe that a prosecutor in a criminal case has a responsibility to turn over all the evidence and all the information about the evidence to a defendant and the defendant's attorney. That can make all the difference in a case. Uh, she also apparently doesn't believe that the um, any of these uh, more modern provisions should be upheld, which is fairly shocking because what that would mean is that we should stay in our very racist past without making any progress, continue the same discrimination against women, or continue the the uh, all of the divisions that we've worked so hard over the centuries to improve. 
So I'm quite concerned about her appointment. I'm concerned about her opinions and her very narrow view of Catholic. Well, there's a lot of people that don't know about Catholic social teaching and we can send her, the Pope's new encyclical is coming out on Sunday. So maybe we ought to send her a copy and see if she'll read it. I understand she's very smart. She's uh, very nice. She's very young. So, I mean, she's probably a nice person. I just totally disagree with her jurisprudence. And I should say I'm a lawyer, so I, I have a lot of opinions about the jurisprudence. We have a, a lot of people in the reform movement who are concerned that this new encyclical is addressed Fratelli and left out Sorelli. Oh, no. right. <laughs> well, I know, but we could fight about the silliest things. I mean, words matter. I agree with that. But you can't fight with the whole romance language. And I understand that the English title is Brothers and Sisters All. So at least they acknowledge that in translation. But I, I really don't want to get into the fights about words. I want to get into the fight about ensuring that women are part of a decision-making process, that women are engaged and protected in their countries and can have access to health, quality health care, that we end structural racism and sexism in our nation. I mean, that's what I care about. And those issues that you're talking about, those Catholic social justice issues, can you differentiate between Biden and what his election would mean, what his what his election to the presidency would mean versus Trump and his re-election. Let me count the ways. Um, okay, first of all, you have to know that the Republican Party has no policy platform, none. So they did not approve a policy platform at their uh, convention. And they have the Trump administration hat or the Trump campaign has no policy up on its website. So all we can say is that it's a continuation of existing performance, which denigrates immigrants, violates international law by denying uh, refugee and asylum seekers admission. It uh, militarizes and generates violence and is extremely ba based in extreme racism. And so, that, I mean, that's our history. That's what's been happening in the last three and three quarters years. The Biden administration, on the other hand, has a very comprehensive plan for what they call Build Back Better to deal with using the opportunity of the pandemic to build back an economy that is uh, less divisive, that uh, does less, that changes it from shifting so much money to the top, pays for it by taxing those with $400,000 in income or more, uh, at a higher rate than is currently being experienced, uh, returns corporate taxes to, uh, well, it doesn't return, it moves them up from the 21% to 29%. So we actually collect revenue. And from that revenue then, we provide for low wage workers. We ensure that everybody gets a quality education and we do our best to make sure that on the issues of food, shelter, clothing, education, a community building is that we invest in the future of our nation. So a Biden administration would be different. Now I'll tell you, they're not perfect. I know that. And I know if they're elected, we'll fight with them too. But at least we would have some hope that our values, that we had shared values, 
It was so shocking at the presidential debate when President Trump refused to say he opposed white nationalism. And he was stuck. Chris Wallace pressed that issue and he just could not bring himself to say he opposes it. He didn't even know how to do it. He did tell me what to say. Tell me what to say. He did not even know. Who are these people? Who are these people? He asked. I'm afraid to say that he is one of them. I know. The mirror. The mirror. And so the the piece that I worry most about, is, I don't know, I can't even say most, is the level of racism and anger and division that we're going to have to deal with as a nation if we're going to save our democracy. And I believe that former Vice President Biden has a much better track record of bringing people together and much greater capacity to move forward incrementally. I mean, that's how we move forward. That was Justice Ginsburg. She said, you need to build change brick by brick, step by step. And that's what we need to do. The benefit of the far left that pulls us ahead, that has these visionary programs and all this, it's really important to get people's eyes moving further towards the horizon. But we'll never arrive at that. But it's an important contribution. Those of us who work on policy, we just try to move it ahead bit by bit, like the Affordable Care Act. We work so hard to get it passed, and then we work so hard to protect it. It was only a step, but now let's improve it. Let's take it the next step, which is one of the, uh, Vice President Biden's proposals is to create this public option, which was in the original House bill, not in the Senate bill. That's all complicated politics, but let's get the public option into the Affordable Care Act. That will expand and reduce the cost of um, reduce the cost of health care dramatically because it'll make competition for the insurance companies. They don't like that. That's why they fought it, is because they know if the public option is in there, it's going to be the lowest and most uh, comprehensive health care. And Oregon, which has done this with its um, public employees and their Medicaid recipients, are all on the same policy. They found tremendous savings. Simone, if Pope Francis were here on this show right now, how would he want to address Catholics and Christians about this coming very, very critical election? What would he, what would be his parting words? I think he would speak of the needs of the people that he knows, that he's met, and to say, when you vote, Think of the woman we heard about, the young girl we heard about who fled her home country and came here up through Brazil and all the way up to the border only then to be held in a cage until she could be finally, after a year and a half, be released to family. Think of the families that go to bed hungry in our wealthy nation because they earn so little at their full-time jobs, $7.25 an hour. Think of all of the ways that our earth is crying out to pay attention to what we're doing to it, to the waste. And think especially of the call of Jesus to meet our brothers and sisters 
and have our hearts broken open and vote with a broken heart. That means that we might be able to save our democracy. What a beautiful ending to a beautiful discussion today. Sister Simone Campbell, thank you so much for being with us, for your tireless work on behalf of the rights of Catholic Christians today. We need you standing up for us, standing up to leaders of our country. So if our guests would like to, if our listeners would like to have any questions at all for our guests today, do so by uh, by leaving a message or a question on our broadcast today. Thank you for being with us. And oh, thank you, Rini, for the opportunity. And let's close with a prayer for our first family's recovery, as well as for all families suffering from COVID-19 today. <laughs>